Hi, it's Sid. Welcome to my Artist Talk series, where I host contemporary photographers, bookmakers, and filmmakers to be in conversation on creative practice. I also speak with curators, publishers, and people who run arts organizations, all those who support and amplify visual culture. We focus on ideas, challenges, and resources. Thank you for joining us. Let's get started. Hello and welcome. I am really excited to share our next artist talk with my colleague and friend, Karen Haas, who is the Lane Senior Curator of Photographs at the Museum of Fine Arts, Boston. And her career is an expansive one, an investigative one, an educational one, and a delight for our eyes. And what I want to do is give Karen an opportunity to let us know about the trajectory of her career, one of the interesting things I know and I think she may speak to is that she was at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum at the time of its historic theft. Um, but she is someone who has a view on the curatorial space that has been one that's been changing so rapidly. Um, and she has also contributed in unbelievable ways to our canon of knowledge. And honestly, there is a whole host of um, imagery we would not have had privy to had it not been for Karen specifically. So I know that we wanna unpack that too. So you yourself, Karen, are a historical figure <laughs> and have made a <laughs> massive impact. So thank you for taking time out of, I know you're getting ready for another opening, but welcome. And I can't wait to chat. Thank you so much. It's really nice to be here, Sid. Yeah, and I'm enviable because we're not using any visual, but if you saw the wall of photo, of photo books and books behind Karen, when she is going from her home office, it is substantial. You would think you were at the BPL, frankly. That is amazing. So- Yeah, as, a, as I said, I think it does hold up half our house. <laughs> It does. It looks like a supporting wall, but it also looks like um, I feel this way about Vincelletti too. It's you are both uh, people that should allow admission to your private <laughs> collections. They're expansive and and put Alison Nordstrom in that category yeah. too. Oh my gosh, I could spend. You know, you go away for a weekend. I could just sit there, but <laughs> I, I won't force that. But tell us, it'd be really fun to hear because you. You entered into the curatorial space when it had a much more defined parameter um, and you've watched it grow. So just give us a broad brush, how you, how you stepped into it. Yeah, um, I love that question, although it is challenging because as you say, I'm a historical figure. <laughs> I've been around a long time, it's a long story. But I will say that I knew, um, in college that I wanted to be working in museums. I fell in love. I had grown up going to museums of all kinds as a child, which I feel very grateful for. My parents always took me um, growing up outside New Haven, going to the Yale Art Museums and the Natural History Museums and all of that. So fell in love with museums early on, but I knew I wanted to go into art history after college. I went to, during college, 
I went to Connecticut College and actually thought I was going to go into American paintings, which is, um, you know, I did I did for several years in graduate school study focus on American paintings. Mm-hmm. But I always say I fell in love with a photographer and I fell in love with the field of photography at the same moment. Um, And once I, those two things came together in my life, luckily the (laughs) photographer is still in my life as well. Um, I, um, I never really looked back and I was very lucky to have had a number of museum, uh, kind of small careers, you know, periods of time where I was working in different places. I worked at the Garden Museum, as you mentioned, that was my first job out of college when I still was more or less a paintings specialist. Um, I then went on to work at places like the BU Art Gallery at Boston University, where I went to graduate school. And that was a great experience, really kind of soup to nuts, the kind of place where you, you know, you make your label, you peel the plexi, you hang the picture, you do everything. And that was good experience. I think I always say I feel sorry for people who go directly into big museums like my own, Mm -hmm. uh, because you've not had that that experience of having been the curator sort of soup to nuts. Um, I live in that space but yeah right. right and I think it makes you a I don't know um more sensitive to kind of the realities of of curating if you've done all the parts um and I also worked at the Addison Gallery in Andover which was a great place to work I always say that the Addison is one of those it's sort of the platonic form of museum for me it's got a beautiful scale everything looks great in it it's one of those buildings with those galleries where you could hang and I've have you know everything from a panoramic a show of panoramic photography that would have been awkward in many other spaces that looked fabulous there, but also where photography is, there's no hierarchy of media there, mm. the way there is in many museums where we as photo people are kind of the poor relations we're seen as the trouble, the troubling children who have exposure light exposure issues things have to come up and down you can't hang something for years on end etc so the addison was one of those places where photography was just front and center and that's where i met many of the great photographers i got to um study and then later work with people like Dawood Bay, even Robert Frank who were artists in residence there mm. um, at that museum so that was a real real highlight of my career. And I've been at the MFA since 2001 um, as the curator of the Lane Collection, which is a very weird and wonderful thing. (laughs) Um, About 6,000 plus photographs by a very few different photographers that was all basically collected, believe it or not, in less than 10 years between 1965 and 75. So at the height of you know, at a moment where many museums were starting, museums were starting to found collections of photography. Here were these, this couple who put together this amazing collection, you know, a plastics manufacturer, self-taught collector out in the Lunenburg Fitchburg area, put together this amazing collection with his spouse. He passed away in 1995 and I've been, I was hired then to organize his photographic estate. And I've been working with his widow, Sandra Lane, ever since. And it has literally been, um, I was just writing a little sort of tribute to her the other day because we are, this exhibition I'm working on now is celebrating the fact that the collection is finally being um, completely given, that the the gift is being formalized, um, even though it's been in the building for for some time. Wow. 
Yeah. Wow. It's really- I mean, you've got such an intimate knowledge of the collection and then, um, a slice of photo history that's so enviable. Well, and it's such an interesting thing because Bill Lane had been a collector of American modernist paintings. So people like Dove and O'Keefe and Stuart Davis um, and and Sheeler. And when he became a great friend of Sheeler's and when Sheeler died, his widow uh, in 1965, his widow approached the Lanes and asked if they might be interested in acquiring the entire studio basically everything that was in his studio and this is an artist whose dealer made him sort of suppress um the photo side of his work as a painter she she wanted to sell his paintings she felt the fact that his photos his paintings were so uh based on his so directly based on his photographs was threatening uh the sales of his paintings which of course is what excites us today but for her was not a good thing and so he had So Bill Lane had been a great friend of the artist, but never knew him as a photographer. This was a very secretive, quiet part of his career. So we literally have almost every photograph the artist ever made in the Lane collection. So thousands of works by Sheeler, thousands of works by Edward Weston. Um, All of these collections also acquired directly from the families of the artists or the artists themselves. And so... What I feel so lucky, and this is what I was sort of trying to think about last night as I was writing this little text I was asked to do, was, you know, who gets to sit with someone who who met all these people in her 20s and now has these amazing stories, these people that for me are historical, as you say, historical figures, Um, you know, like, I'll say something like, wow, you know, look at this, I don't know. Georgia O'Keeffe photograph we actually have and she'll say oh yeah I don't know if I ever told you about the day <laughs> you know we were at Georgia O'Keeffe's <laughs> and I was like oh Ice god tea at the lake in upstate New York oh right my god. even better glass of wine on the roof <laughs> as the sunset over the Petternal <laughs> at Ghost Ranch you know it's really wow oh so this gosh. incredibly intimate warm very direct relationship with artists that is very unusual for collectors. And the other thing about the lanes is because they didn't have children and because this was their life's focus, once they began to collect photographs with the work of Sheeler. So they went from not having a single photograph one day to having 2,500 photographs by Charles Sheeler the next day, literally filling their car and driving back to uh, Massachusetts with the material. And then it was as though the dams had broke and, and they just became photo collectors. But again, very deep, you know, hundreds of works by Ansel Adams, mm-hmm. Imogen Cunningham. And most mm-hmm. of these people were brought together because of the friendship with Ansel Adams. Because weirdly enough, in the, I mean, this probably won't come as any surprise to you, but I was struck that in the 60s, in the late 60s, Ansel Adams was almost the entire um, you know, market for photography. And so um, when you're trying to think how much to pay the widow of an artist per print for, um, you know, you call up Ansel Adams. And um, that then led to a reviving of a friendship that had been, you know, they had met before, but they began to go out quite regularly. And then the Adamses, Virginia and Ansel Adams, then introduced the lanes to the whole um, cast of characters. So the collection is very, that they put together, 
as a couple in that 10 year period in the late sixties, early seventies is very California centered. Wow. Um, yeah. So since then, Sandra and I collected together and what I started to say is because they had no children, this was a collection. You don't buy 2000 photographs to hang on your wall. You are buying works of art. Um, I was trying to describe this to Greg. It was, it's almost like they, they were always thinking about the future. They were always thinking about the next generation. She had been a school teacher. She was very interested in um, sharing the work with the public. You know, it made a big difference that we at the MFA have a study room and that these things would, when they weren't in exhibitions or being lent to other museums, they would be very um, available to anyone wanting to study them or look at them. At the wow. Museum. So it was, it was going to be a collection that was going to be alive and, and not just sit in boxes in storage. Wow. What's so amazing. A couple of things. It's so funny. While I think you may become a historical figure, I just want to clarify that you have impacted the history of photography because of your scholarship. That was the point I wanted to make. <laughs> However, the other thing is like so interesting. Um, I'm going to go backwards in my questions, but starting with this idea of that, um, that there was a thrust of education to this particular pair of collectors. And that that's something that I always thought was the curatorial job, right? That, that you are an educator. Um, yep. And I feel that very, very deeply. And I know that you do as well. So the fact that you were paired, I mean, you are the perfect lane curator. I feel like there's so many aspects of you that really resonate with the mission of this particular couple. And also because knowing you, um, I can imagine it's really exciting that you then stepped into a role of almost advisor. Like how do we round out this collection or what is missing? Yeah. Or even the idea yeah. that you could look at it and go, do you know your California focus because of this, you know, the ecosystem you stepped into was Ansel Adams. And it was really interesting uh, as side note, when I went to um, take Swanee's, uh, Mary Virginia Swanson's masterclass one year, I was at the Center for Creative Photography, obviously. Um, we did a lot there in um, Tucson. And several people that I was in class with were from the West Coast. And I became extremely aware that number one, I'm a New York East Coast person, that when I step out, I go towards Europe and it's Eurocentric. And I really didn't have this sense of the breadth of our history right within this country but it it's really been fun because i have you know purposely tried to expand that view both in this country and in other continents right really balance it out between asia africa europe the states south america like just yeah to, to yeah so it, what was that like to start collecting well it was, it was it was really fascinating and i really I, the the interesting thing was, as I say, the collection that she uh, was part of creating with Bill Lane, with her husband, um, 
he was much older than she was um, and very um, strong willed and, you know, had a very um, specific taste. Um, what was exciting for me, I didn't begin to collect with her until after he passed away and I in 95. And I still joke about the first time she bought a photograph. It took her a little while. I mean, if they had not bought anything since the 70s, they had really slowed down in their collecting over that period. Um, and there was a sense that the collection was finished and kind of wrapped up in a bow. And so when Sondra was on her own, what struck me is the first picture she bought was a Weston. And I had to laugh because we already had, or she already had 2000 plus Westons. And I was thinking to myself, oh my gosh, do we really need this? And, but it was literally the Weston that had gotten away. A great, great photograph, <sighs> a very famous image of Karis with her knee up and her head down on her knee in the sunshine in the doorway. It's a really amazing picture. And one that she very much identified with her husband's, you know, tastes and, and desires. Mm -hmm. The next thing she bought was a work by um, Hagemeyer, um, mm -hmm. an artist who's in that circle, but had a very much more sort of a romantic, sort of soft focus style and had an industrial, sub industrial subject that then um, spoke to Sheeler as kind of the uh -huh. source. Yep, it's like yep. her little baby step, step away. It's like, circle of Adams <laughs> and Edward West and California artists, but with a little bit more soft focus. Gradually, she went really a long way. She said, you know, Bill Lane is spinning in his grave because I've gone like I've gone so far. She used to call it collecting for and aft, meaning oh, that of the modernist material as the heart of the collection. But then she collected all around it. And by the time she was collecting in the 90s and early 2000s with us, she was, you know, there wasn't the ability. I mean, we don't have a single Edward Weston in the collection that has more than $35 written on the back. So wow. that was a different moment. And exactly. now she was collecting at a different time. Photography was so much more expensive. So she was picking and choosing, buying a few of these. When she could, she would buy a small group of works, but never in any of the depth that exactly. she and her husband had collected. But it was always interesting because you'd look at, you know, she became really excited about 19th century photography and she would look at a 19th century photograph and she would find the image that looked like Side of White Barn by Sheeler. Or, you know, it was as though she had formed her eye on modernism. And then when she looked to the whole history of the medium, she would find the picture that really had many of those elements um, and that's what's been so fun for me. We we used to have a game that we played where we would walk into an auction preview or a, an exhibition and it'd be like, what are we bidding on? And I would try and guess what she would love and she would, you know, you know, try and trick me. <laughs> but I really got to the point over the years being so close and doing this. So we're, yeah, to that you be, could hone in. Like, I could often predict or recommend, <laughs> but she was, you know, she was very much buying her own things. It wasn't as though I was like an agent going out and buying things for her. We were doing this. That is so interesting and, and exciting and fun for you to watch somebody's um, eye expand, even though it was slowly and, and really interesting, right? The beginning was like, she was not getting out of the box 
and then and then she did. What was the most, uh, do you think, far flung uh, acquisition that she made? It's, that's a great question and one that I've been thinking about lately because it's in my upcoming exhibition, which is celebrating the gift. Um, the exhibition is about the photographic still life, um, which in some ways I feel is the ideal genre right now in post-COVID, I hope it's post-COVID, in this moment we find ourselves where we've all been so still and maybe hyper aware of our surroundings and the objects that sit on our desks and are in our, in our living spaces or on our office um, you know, workplaces. Um, and the most um, surprising picture is one that I always kid my colleague Ann Havinga and Cliff Ackley, who were both in the department at the time, that I was away. And so <laughs> a dealer came and showed a group of objects to them, you know, and Sandra was there. And they bought something that I would never in a million years have bought for the collection, but I'm so glad she bought it. And it's a Robert Heineken TV mm -hmm. dinner. <gasps> Oh my gosh. And it's one of the TV dinners where you see the the print is printed on canvas, stretched over an actual TV dinner tin tray. So it's Stop. it's got depression, it's hand painted, it's all about popular culture. It's it's literally the opposite of the individual fine print. That was exactly what Heineken was, you know, fighting against, right? Or commenting wow. or critiquing. So it's really, I still laugh every time I look at it. I think that was the day I wasn't there. <laughs> this is what she got. Yeah, but obviously um, your influence was in the sense that she'd grown and um, wow, that was a very um, bold move. It stretch. It was a great stretch. That's amazing. Wow. Well, I'm so excited to see your next show, but I wanted to, um, and we'll talk about that specifically, but I wanted to go back first um, to um, a few of them because it would be helpful, I think, for you to frame how um, within your role, you have a lot of um, competing demands and parameters. So it's not a, a, a space in which you can come up with an idea and 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 necessarily uh, go full throttle forward, right? You've got a lot of layers um, in museums to be able to work within that much larger ecosystem. So what I'm wanting to to unpack is is what you did for our knowledge of Gordon Parks, because that really is where I'm saying that you you literally, uh, when everyone else took a right, you took a left. And then that left, because of your observational eye and curiosity and devotion, really led to a completely new, or not even new, a, a, a re-narrative that we all needed. And it was quite ahead of its time in the sense that I think people are looking for re-narrative and wanting to balance out what we do and don't know about uh, different figures in our canon, but you were ahead of that curve. So tell us how that happened for you. Well, it was complete serendipity. And um, I am someone who really does believe that things happen for a reason. And that was a great example. Um, I 
was working with my colleagues in the art of the Americas because my collection is so American. I often do work with um, my colleagues in that department and combine, you know, photographs from my holdings go into their galleries. So it wasn't unusual that they invited me to write for a catalog they were doing on our collection of uh, work by Black artists throughout the museum. Mm -hmm. And um, so I was for the very first time writing about a number of uh, Black artists, including Gordon Parks, a print that we had in the collection that we've always, um, we've always just, I think it was just titled something like, um, you know, a young couple outside um, segregated movie theater, you know, circa 1949 or something like that. No place, nothing more than that. And I knew, you know, if I was going to be publishing something, I needed to get it a little, um, you know, I, I really had to do my homework. And so I, I, you know, I looked at the image. I knew uh, Parks was supposed to be in New York at the time. This picture didn't look like New York at all. Um, and so I called the foundation and I really credit them, uh, Peter Cunard and um, his colleagues there. They were so incredibly generous. I went and did some digging and I had that magic moment. I probably described to you, Siv, already where like you hear the magic words that every curator wants to hear, which is the reason you don't know more about this picture is it was never published and no one has ever really written about this entire Life magazine. So this was a, a Life magazine assignment from 1950. So we had the date wrong. Um, and and it, had, it had been pulled at the last minute. It's still something of a mystery as to why. And that just led me down this amazing rabbit hole, you know, so it, I, there's a folder full of incredible pictures mm -hmm. and, um, you know, there's an archive in Wichita, Kansas. And so the people at the foundation, Peter, um, still laugh because um, I was the first of this. There's since been a series of these uh, fabulous books um, focusing on different stories, uh, essays, photo essays that Parks did. I was the first person, I think, who just took it for granted that meant I had to go to Kansas to the archive. Everybody else had done, I think, a lot to avoid that. And I was, there I was sitting in Wichita, Kansas, reading his notebooks and uh -huh. realized that there was this amazing story. It was, it was a story that was about segregated education in those years just before Brown versus Board of Education. And, you know, suddenly it was like, again, my photographer spouse was game and is always, you know, happy to go on a road trip. And the next thing we knew, we were driving all over the Midwest, sort of trying to recreate, recreate this great migration story, find all the homes, do a lot more research than I think normally I would have done, except that I was so fascinated by this artist. And all of this came out of just having been asked to write about that particular photograph we didn't know about that is part of the series and mysteriously had made its way into our collection and we didn't know anything about it. But it took me all through the Midwest and it was really a hugely um, eye-opening experience um, in that it was just in the end about 40 photographs, one small room. And yet the impact for our public it was such a good lesson, as I say, it just made me realize that so few um, of our community necessarily regularly saw themselves on the walls of our museum. And this was really exciting for a lot of people to see photographs of black families at that period. Mm -hmm. And then 
um, not to rattle on too long, but I, I did have that magic day where the security guard called me from upstairs. I got a message saying, you need to come up right in way. There's a family here and they're in tears. Mm-hmm. And it turned out there was a family who didn't know their pictures, their family photographs, their grandmother uh, was in the photograph. And in fact, in that photograph that, that the museum owned and um, yes, their daughter was graduating from um, uh, sorry, uh, Boston University. And there they all were. And they invited me back to their hotel. And we sat and talked and we've, they've since sent me other photographs and put me in touch with a number of the other people in oh. this. So it was, it was a huge turning point in my career. And one that has really, I think, and I can say this quite openly, I, I think has made it harder for me to simply hang, for example, a Ansel Adams show, you know, a, a American modernist kind of greatest hits kind of exhibition mm-hmm. uh, without comment, without some larger perspective, without some, you know, contemporary context. It mm-hmm. feels now I really want to always think about uh, the bigger picture and kind of broaden out the story. And that's been, I think, the exciting kind of aftermath or result of this, mm-hmm. of the Gordon Parks project. I never kind of looked back <laughs> after that. Yeah, well, you were forever changed. And I can tell you, having seen the exhibition, I was brought to tears because those photographs, I mean, honestly, they, uh, Dawood Bay echoes it. Um, I, I end up in both situations where I've seen Dawood's work and seeing that work uh, that had been unpublished. It takes your breath away and it is an incredibly visceral experience of basically seeing what you what you were told wasn't there necessarily, right? I'm old enough to know. I mean, I remember Life Magazine barely, but I know what it was, right? So this whole idea of like um, having been grown up on a certain Kool-Aid that you didn't think was happening, but here is like the real happening. And to be so moved by it, it's just so incredible and and, And so I very, very much remember. Um, And then I also had the opportunity because you spoke to Jim Dow's class and I hopped in on that lecture. So I got for you to walk us through, which was also really wonderful because those are just, it was a beautiful compilation uh, and really important work. And I'm thinking of the Ansel Adams show, which I also saw, which I loved, right? You're bringing in, Catherine Opie, you're bringing in Stephen Torlentes. Um, you really opened the the viewpoint of what, how landscape embodies and what it projects. Right? You just you like cracked that open so wide, and I think that that serves a population hugely right to say yeah I felt as though Ansel Adams had been treated as this kind of standalone uh one-of-a-kind sort of phoenix-like character as though he sort of you know rose out of the ashes and had not been influenced by anyone or didn't influence anyone or no one no one could possibly critique his work Mm -hmm. either Mm -hmm. so it was interesting I think 
to admire his work on the one hand, but also say, look at the work he was seeing and what inspired him and drew him to this. And then here are all these contemporary artists, you know, Trevor Paglin, Victoria Sambionaris, Mitch Epstein, um, even Megan Riebenhoff, these people who are then taking this and running with it and bringing this conversation forward because Ansel Adams in a vacuum is a beautiful thing to look at. But I really think, and maybe some, a name that for people my age is, is very, you know, but what's been interesting for me is talking to, I worked with a group of teens this year, we call Curatorial Study Hall, a group of local teens who became sort of my assistants all year working with me on, on this exhibition and some other projects. And they don't know who Ansel Adams is and, and he doesn't have a lot of meaning in their lives uh, as you know city kids living here, um, kids of color. I just felt it was such a good reminder that we really need to look at this, this person's career in this larger, you know, have this bigger perspective, this broader conversation, this much more lively, critical conversation. This is not someone who's off the table in terms of, um, you know, um, I always remember Frank Golke saying that, you know, of the sort of new topographic sort of work, you know, he'd say, we go out every day and just say, please, God, let me not make an Ansel Adams photograph. (laughs) It's been done. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right yeah and yeah. they were they were creations you know they were they were they were somewhat fantastical even when they were being made you know that that it's not as though everything was pristine and perfect and that was purposely why I began the show with a picture of him up on his roof uh, the roof of his car you know trying to do away with the fact when I got to Yosemite I was just knocked out to realize that <laughs> view was made from the parking lot and here he is up on top of the car trying to avoid the parking lot and so this was a little inside joke for myself and I'm sure no one else got it or thought it would was funny but so we started with that famous image of him on top of the car and we ended with Abe Morrell's photograph of the same view in the parking lot so it is projected onto the parking lot which I thought was absolutely perfect and again maybe it's only a joke for me. <laughs> well, or those super observant going through. And, and well, and you're making me think of something that's interesting, um, totally an aside, but because you brought that up, this idea now to get like totally nitty gritty, but the whole idea of sequencing in a show and how you are traveling a person and a narrative. And what you just reminded me of is I often talk to people about book ending. You want to start strong and you want to end strong and you want to have reasons for both. Um, you know, we both have juried uh, Photo Lucida and some other places, right? Where we're looking at maybe 10 images and there is often this propensity that you get all excited at the first image, maybe the second, but that you have this experience of going on a downward slope and you're like, wait a minute, like that's not helpful. So given your amazing amount of shows that you have impacted, talk a little bit about that, about sequencing. Cause I think, Every time I have been unearthing photo books, um, I think that that is something I've heard reflected get such short shrift. 
And I think that a lot of photographers really struggle to A, edit their work, which I completely understand. However, then sequencing too, it's like a language and it's not taught so well. So talk to us about that. Yeah, I I agree that I would say that sequencing images in a space is the curatorial, that is the creative act, it seems to me. Mm-hmm. Like we envy those of us who aren't makers. I, I sit in here and, you know, I've got a very creative person on the other side of the wall doing, doing all kinds of, you know, very tangible things. And so for what I for my work, I would say that sequencing of pictures, the way things speak to each other and sort of on the wall, that is absolutely the most exciting part of what we do. And for an exhibition like the Ansel Adams show, which I'm very excited to say is going to the De Young Museum in San Francisco for its final oh, venue, which awesome. is really exciting. I love the De Young. That's just such a great space. And it's literally Ansel Adams's front yard is where he grew up. So it is perfect. So that'll be next April. I'm really excited. But the, um, the, with the Ansel Adams show, that was one of the largest shows I've ever done um, in the, that was in our big gun gallery. Um, The challenge with that was telling several uh, small stories, you know, having to sort of um, you know, the call and response sort of thing that that we as curators get to do, you know, we get to mm-hmm. put people in conversation with other artists. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that, so, you know, how to do that with historical material, how to do that with very contemporary things, how to, you know, include something like video and um, the voices of the artists, which is very important in that exhibition, I think added a lot to the presentation. But I also wanted to make sure that um, in that case, I wanted to show Ansel Adams in sort of a new light. So I worked my way up to a sort of what I felt was the peak of sort of his fame, which is the national parks at the very middle of the show. So you, you give his, you know, you sort of look at the beginnings, you get to the national parks, you kind of go ta-da in the biggest space. And that was interesting for me because then that was the moment I realized having chosen the entire show that everyone in that room, virtually everyone in that room besides Catherine Opie had been a foreign born artist. And so the idea that here all, you know, people from, you know, like A. Morel from Cuba and Bin Don from Vietnam, all these people were coming to this country and tackling this such a stereotypically American subject in, you know, in the uh, footsteps of Ansel Adams was really eye-opening. But then I wanted to really kind of complicate the conversation. So then I, we, we had galleries, we kind of jokingly called dry and dusty, you know, all the places that where all the the life had been sucked out. The beauty wasn't necessarily there, although Ansel Adams tended to find it. The ghost towns, this idea of us as a con- you know country of extractive technologies, and you know that we lay waste whole stretches of our country without thought. But then I got to the end, and I realized I said to my colleague James Layton, who worked with me on it. I said, you know, we don't want people like jumping off the roof after this show. This is really discouraging. This is really depressing what we've done. You know, this is really, we want to open people's eyes, but we don't want to leave them completely devastated. So we had to end with young artists, you know, so very consciously chose two younger artists who would maybe give us hope because I, I know it maybe sounds naive, but there was a sense like, oh, maybe the artists will open people's 
eyes. You know, maybe we've not, we've done so poorly. Otherwise, maybe people like this. So Lucas Foglia, where you see in two and Megan Rubenhoff, two artists responding to one of Ansel Adams's most famous series, which was the surf sequence where it's you, he's looking down on the ocean is coming up on the beach and then receding and the waves are moving in and out. And so in one case of Lucas Foglia, he's digging this he's digging the beach and bringing it back and sort of like this is hopeful but for how long and then Megan Rippenhoff literally wading into the water with her cyanotype and 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 the five waves that Ansel's photographing in sequence she's literally recording on the paper and you know complete with the sand and the algae and everything else and I, that to me just felt like Oh my God, this is perfect. I love the way this ends. I feel as though there's some hope. Can we please have some hope? And these are the images that will get us there. Um, and I agree with you. When you do reviews, I always say this to people and we're all like getting ready to do critical mass and I'm mm -hmm. filtered in September. I also always want people to say, I don't feel as though you want to limit someone to a... Um, you know, like everything shouldn't look the same. Um, but I, I do think that you have to uh, always have to remember that artists sometimes you've invested so much in the making of that, uh, um, that image that you forget how little the person consuming it has to go with, you know, right? Like remember the pea brain curator who's sitting there wearily having looked at so many images and think about what it is you've just handed them and really how little they have to go on. Mm -hmm. And if you give them very little and then they get to the end of a series and there's suddenly a picture or two that don't even look like they were made by the same artist. I think that is just about the scariest thing. You start to think this person just felt they needed to kind of show the range of what they could do and yet what they've done is really finish the 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 um, impact of their work mm -hmm. by diluting it with these things that make you wonder where they've come from you know mm -hmm. so a kind of, a certain consistency of vision and a and a recognition that most people seeing the work have only those few minutes with it if that and uh, that we need to really you need to really be sensitive to remember how much you've put into it but really how little someone else coming to it casually is going to be able to absorb yeah I, I love the way that you put that the idea of the consistency of vision um I, I I wanted to underscore two things when I describe curating I talk about making art with art that that's what I feel like I'm doing um and because I've worked um, from these various vantage points within the visual culture creation and then amplification, um, I came at it originally with the idea that photographers would instinctively be able to identify their most impactful image. And I now do not hold that belief. Um, and it's partly because of the making of it and all that it entails and what it took to potentially create one. And, and so there's a real challenge to see it with a different eye. And um, so I look at how, how a person develops a conversation with their work 
that strengthens their ability to let go of other parts of their work. And it's really fun for me because that's the work I do. Watching people, I feel like get in the driver's seat and they're much more able to like let go. And then what they're putting forward is so much more impactful because it has this like foundational confidence. Like, like if you look at a lot of the people that you've mentioned, uh, Abelardo Morel or Megan, it's like, we know their work because they know their work and they entered into it with like a, a, a vision that they own. And then we can follow because it's so developed and um, it's not that it stayed, right? It all evolves, but it's this, right. you know, uh, ability to, to know how you see, I think is super important. Yeah. Yeah. And you definitely, you certainly want to see an evolution. I would say though, um, when you talk about sequencing or looking uh, the thinking around a book or even what you present in a portfolio review, that there really, it really seems to me quite important that it not, um, you know, drift off at the end, but also not shift gears into something completely different. I really have had a few times, as you say, where I start marching through someone's um, images on the screen or in person, and I get halfway or even less sometimes through, and suddenly I feel like I'm just, wait, I'm just looking at something completely that's coming from a completely different place with no explanation. And um, I suppose, you know, I'm trying to do the work on my side. I'm not saying the artist has to do everything for me. I'm not asking to be sort of hand, have it hand fed either. But um, anyway, it's an interesting, it's an interesting conundrum, but it is absolutely the most exciting part of what I do. I would say um, that and, you know, doing our own books, you know, writing books ourselves, which is um, again, the kind of thing going back to the Lane collection that I'm very lucky to do because that, that concern for sort of getting the word out and telling the stories and doing the research on our collections, we often don't have that luxury as curators to do a lot of books, a lot of deep digging. But you can imagine that for someone like me, normally you do a loan show, you do a show. If in any other setting, if I were doing a show of Sheeler or Weston, I would be going all over the place, looking at everyone's Sheeler and Weston collections, but I have all that material in the building. I can go, I can go and bring it into the study room and spend time with it anytime. And it is such an amazing luxury. So that's what's inspired a number of the books. And those, that process, I would say, is the other side of curating that is really, I feel very lucky because, you know, many people really are only doing exhibitions uh, pretty regularly. And I've had the great good fortune to do both. And how does that work in terms of um, you're responsible for a catalog sometimes, but then also books? Like, how do you how does that work into your workflow at the museum? Luckily for me, because the collections are so deep, um, the Lane collection is so deep, I very much more typically do books. Um, we. I think, and I think this is true of many museums are moving away from the big catalog that only represents a single exhibition. Mm -hmm. um, more and more often we're doing books that um, live on beyond an exhibition. And often 
like the Life magazine show that's about to open in October at our museum that my colleague Kristen Gresh has organized. I don't know if you've seen the catalog, but it's like a Encyclopedia Britannica has like 20 plus authors. This is much more common today and very uh, a very exciting way of of curating um, and collaborating in that case with the Princeton Art Museum curator, Kate Bassard. So a larger project that will represent the exhibition that will be at our museum, but luckily lives on as a very substantial book because that was also a COVID project that very sadly um, at Princeton was only open for about a week or two and then closed down. It was really devastating for the curator there. And this is to a number of our colleagues. So if you have a book, then there is a sense that at least that will survive, even though you didn't get to do the show. Um, so interesting too. I'm thinking for some reason it made me jump to um, the Paris um, Photo Aperture Book Awards and that there has been the category um, of exhibition catalog. And I think that that's what we see as what is deemed an exhibition category uh, catalog is changing. Yeah, it really, really is. And I think there is a real sense. And I think, again, this is a very healthy thing for our field, um, moving away from the sort of single authoritative voice of one curator and this idea of a much more collaborative, um, many voices, many more people involved, many often people coming from different even fields of, of expertise. And that's an exciting way to work too. Absolutely. I mean, that for me, that is, um, I think, one of the most exciting things. And I remember when the MFA did the exhibition, and you'll remember the title better than I will, where they used um, blue and white and chinoiserie as the thematic piece and brought in fashion and ceramics. And I was jumping up and down. I'm like, yeah, like a yeah. conceptual way of, of, of presenting because that hits so many different people's perspectives, right? It's, yeah, it was a fascinating show. It was organized by my colleague, Emily Silbert. And I think it actually was called Blue and White. Um, <laughs> it was a wonderful show. We all love that. Yeah, a really great example. And is that, um, do you, I, I think as we're kind of wrapping the time we have, what do you think about the future of how, I, uh, of, of exhibiting and education and the voices of um, how do we um, uh, evolve, I, sh I would want to yeah. say. Well, I think um, the example of my, my colleague's Life Magazine show is, I mean, I do think that we are, I think, more and more going to have contemporary interventions, even when talking about something like Life Magazine, she is including the work of Alfredo Jar um, um, and other contemporary artists who will be featured within the body of the exhibition in the same way I did with Ansel Adams. Um, so that I think is more and more gonna be um, the tendency with exhibitions. I would say the other thing is that I think we'll be um, very much more fluid and less, we're, rarely are we going to hang shows chronologically any longer, mm -hmm. strictly chronologically. I think 
thematic exhibitions like the Blue and White Show or um, one of my colleagues in the contemporary department is working on the idea of care. Mm. All thinking about care and what caring, caring means. Um, and um, I am very excited. <laughs> you're lucky you're asking me this at the end of our conversation. <laughs> I could go on for days, but I am I am currently very excited about um, anthotypes and the idea of the fragile, the disappearing, the the photograph that is not long lived. And mm-hmm. I I kind of joke that if you work with the American modernists, and there is this sense I think in our field that things that last and have this. Um, staying power almost, you know, um, I guess some people describe, you know, Ansel Adams Prince is kind of bulletproof. The black and white, you know, modernist, beautifully printed single image, that would be maybe like the gold standard for many museum collections uh, up until now. And I would say that I am very excited about, for example, a book that just came out by Kate Palmer Albers, who was a BU colleague I knew through Boston University. Um, and now is based in California. It's called the Night Albums. And it's all about basically the fact that our entire medium was created, uh, it, even at its very start, was something that did not promise uh, stability or, um, you know, that many of these early, at least for the first um, decades of, of photography, there was no way to necessarily fix things to keep mm-hmm. them disappearing. And um, I'm really interested um, by things like, you know, Caleb Cole and Elizabeth Ellenwood and um, Jessica Ferguson and all these uh, contemporary artists who are making, and, you know, people like Megan Rupinoff who are mm-hmm. commenting on um, things like climate change, on um, you know the fragility of life for trans individual individuals living in this crazy world we're in. Um, I, I just I've really been thinking a lot about the idea of how often it seems of late people are looking at the medium and the message as being one and the same, mm-hmm. and that this idea that you would talk about the fragility of life and use something as fragile as rose petals from your own garden oh. as a dance artist, how you would make these objects that are going to appear and yet are very much meant as a tribute to these people who've been lost. Like to me, this is almost the perfect photograph. And I feel as though as the world gets, as our existence feels more and more fragile and our lives feel so turned upside down, there is something really incredible about um, sort of, I don't know, a deep dive into making images that don't last and to be thinking about things like memory. And I, I got, because I worked at the Garden Museum, I was very lucky to be part of the Sophie Call project she did about wow. the memories surrounding all those objects that most of us we hope someday we'll see again, but many of us probably won't. And being married to the photographer who made those photographs, those in many cases are the only images that are left of those of those objects. Mm-hmm. I am really, I'm very interested in the idea that you know I I have a very visceral memory of opening that 
folder because this is a million years ago of course for the color transparency of the Vermeer after the the painting is gone and they're realizing there's only one and that every image of this picture from here on will be some some iteration (laughs) iteration of that of that image and um and then to look at things like the traces on the wall where the uh, where the paintings where the frames were taken off and to see that Sometimes, as I've argued, sometimes those traces are more powerful than the image in the photograph. Mm -hmm. And I'm really getting very excited by this idea of photographs as traces. And in some cases, things that don't survive and don't Mm -hmm. last. And Mm -hmm. that speaks to our very precarious, uh, you know, our own, um, you know, sense of our lives and our place in this world it really has got me thinking in very interesting ways and I I would love to do a show on that topic but (laughs) (laughs) please and like I want to run shotgun because that's it's so exciting to think about and as you talk about it it you know it warms my Roland Bart heart, right? It's it's truly what he was exploring and trying to put his finger on, which is why I named my podcast after Punctum. It's like how, you know, it's slippery like water, right? It's like, how do you hold on to it? And the idea, um, I love what you just opened up for us. And you're reminding me of as I stood in front of Caleb's tribute and turned to him, like, again, brought to a visceral, tearful reaction to just say, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that bold move. Thank you for your imagination and that level of creativity. And, and I mean, just the poignancy of the care of cutting a rose and then making that tribute. I mean, I still, I get visceral chills, right? And this idea, you made me think of Alyssa Minahan and, you know, yeah, a curatorial like problem, like, oh, we bought this book and sorry, but in 10 years, it's not going to look anything like this, but that's the entire point, right? And so I love that idea of um, almost embracing impermanence in a way that it has always been there and we a denied it and b tried to control it which is comical and now it's kind of like could we like really fess up to the truth like we're all in this together and it's all moving and we're all responsible and you know it's yeah and as i say the same light that created that object is the light that's going to destroy it in the end mm-hmm. and with that put us as curators where you know we are implicated in this process every time we choose to take those objects out and put them on the wall and we have very intense conversations with conservators and colleagues about um, usage of works on paper you know how much exposure how much time what are the choices we make if you buy a work that like Caleb's uh, that is going to disappear, but absolutely speaks to this moment and should be seen now by mm-hmm. as many people as we possibly can have see it. And yet, what is our commitment? What is our responsibility as curators? Because that is really our mandate is to protect these objects for, you know, as long as we can keep them going. And that is a really interesting conundrum. And that's why I'm really excited about this book because it's got me thinking. Kate Albers' book has really got me thinking in very interesting new ways and um, uh, got me looking at work and making anthotypes on my porch. Um, 
yeah thanks to that so so cool oh I can't wait so we have a we have a hint of your next book (laughs) in your spare time and then and then um the idea of uh when is the opening for the stillness of things yeah so we don't have a public opening because it's a relatively small show and so it opens though I mean we don't have like a formal opening but it Mm -hmm. will open to the public on August 27th so it will be up through the fall and early winter Mm -hmm. um I'm really excited about it it's about 60 works by a 30 plus different photographers, very rich in things like the American moderns that of course are at the center of the collection. Mm -hmm. Um, But beginning with a wall that I'm particularly thrilled to have, which is William Henry Fox Talbot's um, shelves of China. So from the very, from the pencil of nature, the very beginnings of our medium the discovery of uh or the invention of photography mm-hmm. uh 1840s next to a work by adam foos a daguerreotype by a contemporary photographer so it's basically these two early processes that people will be surprised to see in the lane collection um the uh, adam foos has a beautiful inscription on the back to sandra and you know what he mm-hmm. was an artist he is an artist that she admired greatly and then opposite that on the wall just to, to give the range of the contemporary work we'll also have a work by David Hilliard um, that I'm just thrilled uh, to have finally acquired for the collection oh. something that Sandra and I saw in 2006 that is um, basically the artificial flower aisle in Walmart in southwest Florida made when on a visit to his mother um, there and very commenting on the Dutch still lifes that are on now on view in our wonderful new Dutch paintings galleries upstairs where Dutch painters would show off by um, featuring still lifes that included blooms that could not possibly have bloomed at the same time of year and here we've got David you know it's like eight or nine feet long this beautiful huge print of Walmart flowers um, (sighs) that really spoke to his uh, evangelical Christian mother who saw it as kind of a space of rapture in her mind. It was one of her favorite places and someplace she particularly loved. So oh, it, it's got so a real range of things and it's got that Heineken TV dinner. So, <laughs> <laughs> and I have to say, I'm a big Adam Foose fan. Um, so it's really exciting to know that that's going to be in there too. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. There's so much. And um I was thinking that you mentioned before that if you look at the amount of traffic within a museum of your size, um, what you, you mentioned something about potentially a half a million people viewing, is that over a year? Over six months. So the six month installation would be traffic of roughly half a million people. Yeah, That's it's amazing. So- it's amazing. The trick yeah. is to get them to stop. <laughs> and I think, I think this show will do that. I hope. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Well, I know that you have stopped me in my tracks more than once. And um, I think you're doing it to a lot more people than you might realize. And um, 
I'm so excited. And the last thing I'll, I'll ask about is you're going to filter in Chicago and I assume Paris photo where I don't assume I know you've got to, um, and anything else in that nature coming up for you? Well, I'm really looking forward to doing critical mass, which I do every year too. And, and now I'm, I'm looking forward to Chicago and Paris in November. We do go every year and, um, always like to say that anyone who does go, and I know you feel the same way and wants to check in with us, we'd love to um, show things that we've seen and we're excited about to other people, you know, um, New England and further afield. Um, I'm very lucky because my family, my grandchildren are there. So it's a great occasion all around personally. Mm -hmm. um, I'm also looking forward to taking uh, a group to San Francisco in the spring when my show is up at the, the Young Music. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Seeing the new San Francisco ICA, going to Pier 24, going to SF MoMA. I'm really excited about that. And of course, I think we'll probably eat pretty well too so, uh, we're looking forward to that um, and that is something we do with our curator circle which is our departmental support group at the MFA mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That um, so that's travel that's that's it for me and I'm we're working our way gradually back into the travel um, as you I think everyone feels you know slow slowly but surely and I was very glad to go to photo lucida in the spring in Portland same. That was, that was yeah. a treat. And, and really I so felt it. And it was, it was interesting because that was my first foray back. Then we were at APAD and I can remember um, I was talking to Becky Senfin APAD and we were laughing about how we almost forgot how to do this, that there was a real right. adjustment period. It's like, I mean, I'm an extrovert. Yeah. This is, this is, these are my favorite places. And it was still very obviously aware it was coming to us newly. It was very yeah. interesting. Um, I'll let you know um, that one of the things that's on my horizon is actually because of a personal reason going to Rome. So we are going to the Venice Biennale. Oh, great. Oh, I'm going to have a heart attack because that is so exciting. And what a year to be able, I've never been, I mean, I've been to Venice, but not to the Biennale to, to go. I'm just... I'm super, super thrilled. So yeah, yeah, you're going to have a great time. I'm sure I've never been to the Biennale. Um, we're excited. We're going to have a, a tour at the ICA of the Simone Lee show um, next year that we're all very much looking forward to. Um, but have a great, great time. And I know I'll see you many times before. Before. So Karen, thank you so much. This was really, really fun. I appreciate you giving us those insights and You've got many, and I'm I'm going to hold you to that last book there. Not last, but because I think you'll have more. But I want to see that come to fruition because I think you've been thinking about a lot of these things for a while, and it's just so fun. I mean, you really have been able to embrace the change, I would like to say, and that that's... Um, getting comfortable with this idea of not knowing where it is all going or going to fall out, but being aware. Um, so important. Yeah. And that's one of the things we're all doing, right? You know, kind yeah. of licking the finger, putting it up, 
which way is the wind blowing? What are we, what's coming down the pike? It's part of the reason I think we all do things like, you know, review students' work, um, get involved with programs like MassArt and Leslie and SMFA. We're really all very much trying to sort of um, see who, uh, who is studying with and being influenced by the artists that we already know and trying to get be, you know, get a little ahead of things. Not that we usually, you really can usually get ahead of things, but to keep up and to, yeah, sort of take the temperature of our field over and over again. Those are the things we feel very lucky for. And yeah, I think you don't necessarily have a sense of that when you first start your career, but maybe that's something that comes with, especially the comfort of being in a place that you've worked in as long as I have. Um, you do, you get to know the spaces, you know, the cast of characters, and I'm really, I am excited about this next show and hopefully more shows after that. So thank you. You're welcome. Wow. So much to look forward to. Yeah, I feel very lucky. And it's really nice to talk with you. And um, thank you for inviting me. Oh, you're most welcome. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. We could go on. Take care. (laughs) You too.